Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon Wimes, here. One of my writers, this case, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Has written me an episode, Tommy Lynn Sells, the coast-to-coast killer. Oh, my God, it's going to be a dark one, isn't it? He's killing from coast to coast. I mean, this is this is probably across America, isn't it? That's that's a big distance. If you're new here, welcome, welcome. The format of the show is I've never read this before. We're going to read it and explore together. So let's dive in, shall we? Over the years, police and the FBI have developed many advanced techniques for identifying and capturing serial killers who are operating across the United States. However, if you're a frequent watcher of police dramas, you'll most likely know that one of the most effective techniques is also one of the simplest pattern recognition. By looking at three pieces of information, where, who, and how, many things can be learned, the most consequential of which is whether a crime is simply a one-off or if it is the latest in a string of rapidly escalating crimes perpetrated by a single individual. And this is like, I feel serial killers, sometimes you're like, you want the notoriety and you want not to get caught, but you want people to know that you're doing these crimes and you want like a cool nickname rather than as we talked about like it, which is what we should just we, like we should give disparaging nicknames to criminals. But it's like if you really don't want to get caught, just like mix it up. There you go. Where? Do it in different places. Who? Murder people from different backgrounds. How? Use different weapons. Boom! Easy. Makes it much harder to get caught. You're welcome. What am I doing? <laughs> What am I doing with my life? For example, if multiple sexual assaults and murders occur within a single neighborhood, as was the case when investigating disgraced former colonel and sexual predator David Russell Williams, then it is highly likely that their suspect has some sort of intimate connection to that neighborhood. Maybe they currently live there, or maybe they live there at some point. It doesn't matter. It is a lead. Similarly, if the bodies of several red-headed women are discovered in close proximity to one another, police will link those crimes together based on hair color alone. And lastly, if an arsonist uses a very specific type of accelerant in a unique way, such as pouring acetone and paint thinner in a spiral pattern around a home's living room, it can be easy to link several sites together, even if they're hundreds of miles apart. And if you're doing that to your neighbours and they all look the same, you're... <laughs> You're a bit dim, aren't you? I'm as stupid as a stupid does. In this way, police can take the sum of all the evidence found in multiple locations, tie it neatly together, and have a much better understanding of who they are searching for. I get the feeling that old Tommy, the subject of today's video, is going to be the one guy who's like, yeah, he knows about this who, when, and how, and he's going to be like, doing it in different places, coast to coast, baby. Why am I why am I speaking about him like this? I'm making him sound like genius, big brain Tommy, when really he's just a prick who killed people. None of this is particularly complicated, but what happens when a killer does not follow any type of identifiable pattern? What happens when they have no area of operation? What happens when there is no specific murder method or weapon, no logical motivation, no linking factor that ties all the victims together? Well, as I said at the beginning of the episode, Matt, it's going to be it's going to be really hard for them to figure it out. Although they obviously do, because look, this episode's titled Tommy Lynn Sells, Not Anonymous Killer 6. So... He's going to get caught, isn't he? But DNA has got to be like a good one. That's a modern one. But I don't even know when this is taking place. So we don't know if that's an option yet. Well, suddenly the police have a very big problem. Today, we're going to be looking at a killer just like the one I described. His name was Tommy Lynn Sells. And for over two decades, he carved a path across the United States, killing at random and leaving entire families dead in his wake. For the sake of everyone, Simon included, I usually try to keep details light. But in this episode, there is no way to do that. Oh... <laughs> okay, Tommy Lincells may not be in the running to replace Pedro Lopez, although maybe he is. Right, Pedro Lopez killed like 200 children, dude. Like, we just released it, I think it was this morning at the time I'm recording this episode, the Albert Fish episode, which is, it's a whole other level of dark. 
but he didn't kill 200 children like Pedro Lopez. Pedro Lopez haunts me. But their stories are somewhat similar, as are their victims. Tommy killed men, women, and children alike. And while researching him, I came across the term family annihilator multiple times. Why would that even... Family annihilator. I don't like it. Annihilator makes it sound like a 1980s action movie, when really this guy's a f***ing monster who murdered people's families. That descriptor is unfortunately accurate. So in truth, this introduction serves as a content warning. Tommy Lynn Sells' story is cold and uncaring, and so was he. After being captured, he spoke plainly about his crimes and why he had committed them. Yet till his dying breath, he never once apologized or repented for them. Feeling regret, he said, was simply not possible for him. Well, he sounds like a classical psychopath then, doesn't he? It's like, no, I can't regret it. I don't regret it because I don't feel anything, which is weird. Sells is classified as a thrill-seeker killer, but that does not even begin to do him justice. He was also an... I can't use these words this early in the video, but he's the one that begins with R. He's the one that begins with P and ends in file. And he was also the one that begins in N and finishes with Filiac and has stuff to do with dead people. So, uh, YouTube, please don't. <laughs> it's like, if I said those words this early in the video, it would get demonetized, and I'd be sad, because I need to pay for these. He was diagnosed with a unique form of personality disorder that includes elements from antisocial, borderline, and schizoid personality disorders, as well as bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, and psychosis. I was recently hearing from a mate about someone he knows who has this, uh, borderline personality disorder. I'd never heard about this before or knew anything about it. That shit's crazy. It's like to do with manipulation and all of this. It's like really weird. And how they attach onto people, it's really weird. I was like, that's quite a condition, isn't it? And on top of all of that, he may be one of the most well-traveled serial killers of all time. For over two decades, he traversed the United States, primarily states throughout the South and Southwest, jumping trains and thumbing rides to over 16 states, in which he is believed to have committed at least 22 murders, although that number may be as high as 74. This is the story of Tommy Lynn Sells, a.k.a. the Coast to Coast Killer. See, the Coast to Coast Killer is kind of a cool nickname. Why do we have to give these guys cool like the Green River Killer? Uh, the Son of Sam. It's like, what? just let's call him Head Six. Done. Housekeeping. Now, before we get started, I need to make everyone aware of a few things. First, based on statistics that I've read, only about 50% of all homicides in the United States each year are cleared, which means the police have confidently identified the murderer. But the term cleared doesn't mean the same thing as convicted, nor does it mean that the police have even charged the person they believe to be responsible. It simply means that they're no longer devoting any resources to investigating a particular case. So it's like it could equally be, yeah, yeah, we cleared it. By cleared it, we mean gave up. Wow. Only 50%. Well, I guess the other 50% are like, yeah, well, it's still ongoing. They're like open cases. So would would a cold case then be cleared? I guess so. I always thought it was like 50% meant, meant like convictions or like went to court. But I guess not. That 50% figure is quite misleading then. And I know, like, I remember when I was studying law, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The number of people who get caught for the crime is like this percentage. Then the number of people who get, uh, just the, who the CPS decides to prosecute is this percentage. The number of people who end up in court is this percentage. The number of people who end up in jail, uh, guilty, is this percentage. And it's like, wow, it's really unlikely that you, <laughs> that you end up right at the end of the chain. 
But uh, obviously it happens. Don't commit crimes. And yet crime has continued. In general, clearing a case is synonymous with closing a case, but there's also something known as cleared by exception. When this happens, police know, or at least strongly suspect, that they know who committed a crime, but cannot charge them due to some unfortunate circumstances. In some cases, the suspect may already be deceased, but in others, the police may simply not have enough evidence to formally charge them. However, either way, the department now considers the case to be closed because in their opinion, they know who did it. Okay, so that's not a cold case then. That's like, okay, well, it was this guy, but we don't have enough evidence. We know it's him. We know it's him, but we can't do anything about it. This long-winded explanation... (laughs) especially with my tangents, is relevant because, spoiler alert, Tommy Lynn Sells may be suspected of committing over 70 murders, but he'll only officially be charged and convicted of one. The main reason for this will be revealed by the end of the episodes, so stay tuned. But going forward, you should know that much of the information provided throughout this script comes directly from Sells himself via either his own confessions to police or from conversations with reporters and crime journalists. That means that some of what Sells claims should be taken with a grain of salt, but not all of it. Police from departments across the United States may not have officially charged Sells with every murder that he has confessed to, but many of them now consider those cases to be cleared by exception. They believe Sells may be exaggerating or outright lying about specific details of his crimes, specifically his motivations for committing them, but they do believe he is the killer nonetheless. For this reason, I've chosen to believe and include much of what Sells claims, although I will not be presenting his supposed motivations because some of them are pretty ridiculous. For instance, Sells claims that many of his victims were P-words, but there is no evidence of this, and I will not be dragging any murder victims' names through the mud based on nothing but the word of their murderer. Yeah, because that would be super f***ed up. (laughs) You can't trust this Sells guy. He says he's murdered 70 people. Later, when we look at individual crimes, I'll speak more about possible motivations and the reason that a particular victim may have been targeted, but just remember that most of this information cannot be fully verified. It is simply what either the police believe or what newspapers have reported. Second, my other major source of information for this script, a more reliable source by most accounts, is the book Through the Window, the terrifying true story of cross-country killer Tommy Lynn Sells by Diane Fanning. Now, I know Simon typically frowns on trusting books that may have been written as a shameless cash grab, but this book seems to be reliable. I mean, no, no. I often make this criticism, Matt, on Decoding the Unknown, rather than Casual Criminalist, which is another podcast I do, because Decoding the Unknown is all about, like, aliens and cryptids, and we decode that, and we try to cast a skeptical look on it. And often the books that we come across in those episodes are people who are trying to cash in by writing something that's fictional and saying that it is factual, like aliens built the pyramids or like alien abductions, that kind of nonsense. And then they write a book all about it and they make money because they're selling it as a fact book, even though it's really fiction. With true crime accounts and stuff, I'm like, that's just journalism. I feel this is this can be totally reliable and, and nice. In this introduction, Diane says that she corresponded with Sells himself dozens of times throughout the book's writing, and she also interviewed Sells' mother, his mother's sister, his former neighbors, his former friends, and many other people who were in his life at one point or another. So yeah, it just sounds like excellent journalism, to be honest. She also personally interviewed and spoke with over 17 police detectives, captains, and chiefs from over nine states about their investigations into cells, all of which she mentions by name. She also listed nine prosecuting attorneys, attorney generals, and judges that she either exchanged emails with or met in person. 
Essentially, I trust her book because of the staggering amount of research that she did while writing it and because I have not seen any criticisms of her work aside from those which criticize her writing style, but that is neither here nor there. It's, this sounds like a like an excellent, well-researched book, to be honest. I personally didn't read the entire book from cover to cover, but I did reference it many times whenever online sources seemed either sketchy, sensationalized, unspecific, or some combination of all three. And finally, as I said earlier, buckle up, because this is going to be a rough one. You hear that sound? That's the sound of nothing. Because you're not using Shopify to sell things online. Shopify is, uh, well, they're the best. Listen to this. Listen to this. Do you hear that, Chaching? Play it. Play it. Do it. Yes, that's the sound of selling on Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Yeah, you might be thinking, oh, well, well, start up and you go with some like small solution. And then it's like, my business has grown. I'm selling thousands, millions? How much stuff do companies sell? It could be a lot, right? Well, look, with Shopify, it doesn't matter. You can sell one thing and then scale it up to thousands and they're ready with you. They're like, yeah, of course, we can handle that with Shopify. You've heard of us. We're amazing. Shopify puts you in charge of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Spotify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify is the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers into buyers. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States. Good Lord. Is that I just got this on my copy points. That's an insane number. And Shopify is a truly global force, powering Allbirds, Rothies, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 170 countries. So that's no joke about like being IPO ready. Those are big companies that are using Shopify. Like I say, it really does scale with you, doesn't it? It's Shopify. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash casual, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash casual to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash casual. And now back to today's episode. Nina's Kid. Tommy Lynn Sells was born on the 28th of July, 1964, alongside his twin sister, Tammy Jean Sells, in Oakland, California. And from their very first days on Earth, they were doomed to have a terrible life. If you got twins, would you really call them Tommy and Tammy? It sounds like they're in a movie. It doesn't sound like real people's names. At the time of their birth, Tommy and Tammy's mother, Nina Sells, had already got two other children, Terry Joe and Timothy Lee. She's naming them all with the T's, huh? Tommy, Timmy, Tammy, and Terry. Really? She would eventually have three more, another set of twins, Jerry, Kevin, and Jimmy Keith, as well as little Randy Jean. What, did she run out of T's? So she just went for J's, and then, well, R, okay, she broke the rule. Tammy, Tommy, Timmy, and Tummy, whatever. That is a total of seven children, and while they all bore the surname Sells, none of them were actually fathered by the man whose name was on their birth certificate, William Sells. The children's real father was a used car salesman named Joe Lovins, and after his early death, Nina was a single mother for most of her life. Now, if you had his spinning from all of the names in that last paragraph, don't worry, because most of them won't be mentioned again. For now, the three most important names are Nina Sells, William Sells, and Joe Lovins, and their relationship with one another is somewhat complicated. Yes, I imagine it would be, seeing as the used car salesman is the father, the husband's in the picture, and what's going on? Joe Lovins was the biological father of Nina's seven children, but William Sells agreed to claim paternity for one simple reason. 
Insurance fraud. <laughs> He's claimed paternity for one simple reason, because he wanted to be a good man. Nope. It's fraud. You see, William Sells was an insurance salesman from California who had a nasty gambling problem, and Joe Lovins was the man who helped William keep his kneecaps by loaning him money to repay his debts. And while I don't know exactly how much money Joe loaned William, it must have been quite a pretty penny, because to repay the debt, William agreed to sign the birth certificate of Joe's children so that they could all be added to his company's generous health insurance policy. Neither Joe nor William took responsibility for raising any of Nina's children, but this was Joe's way of providing for them without actually being a father wow that seems like america get your health insurance system sorted out people are committing insurance fraud and signing each other's birth certificates so children can go to the hospital for free it's top america what the after this arrangement was made, when Tommy was about a year old, Nina packed up her bags and moved to Missouri with her children in tow. Here she worked hard to provide for them, but she was not without flaws. The children often went hungry and were left home alone to babysit one another, while Nina worked at various jobs. And to make matters worse, a tragedy was about to strike. When Tommy and Tammy were 18 months old, Tammy developed a high fever and had to be admitted to hospital. While their doctors isolated Tammy and told Nina that her daughter had likely developed pneumonia and would be fine after a few days. Twelve hours later, though, Tammy was dead. An autopsy later revealed that she died from spinal meningitis. Meningitis is intense, right? I remember them being like, when I was a kid, there were like posters around. Even at university, I remember there being like a poster up in the in the in the kitchen about like the signs of meningitis, and there was something about pushing a glass onto a bruise, and if the bruise doesn't go away, then you've got to go like see the doctor because you might have meningitis, and then it will kill you. And I was like, really? I don't know anyone who's ever died from meningitis. Obviously, it's a thing. But don't, on the vaccines again, like, <laughs> I don't know anything about meningitis, look. Don't listen to me. Just take meningitis seriously. Devastated, Nina returned home to mourn, but when Tommy started displaying the same symptoms, she freaked out and drove over 90 miles out of her way to another hospital, to one she hoped would be more competent. Tommy then spent five days in hospital being closely monitored and was eventually released once his fever broke. God damn, having one kid die from something like that, it's just gonna f*** you up. I mean, other than the obvious trauma of having your kid die it's like you're just every sickness everything you're gonna be like oh my god oh my god oh my god now fully aware that she couldn't handle raising so many children on her own while also mourning the loss of tammy nina purchased a home near her sister bonnie walpole who would sometimes babysit for her nina and bonnie's parents would also help out occasionally as well after tammy's death nina's relationship with tommy soured and it's believed although not confirmed that she could not stand to look at the boy's face because it reminded her of tammy because of this she then sent tommy away to live with bonnie permanently and tommy took a liking to his aunt almost immediately even as an adult who claimed to feel no emotions tommy lovingly referred to her as aunt bonnie while living in this new home tommy had the closest thing that he'd ever experienced to a normal childhood bonnie purchased him a tricycle and taught him how to ride it she cooked full regular meals something that nina had never been able to provide and taught him proper table manners in the evenings after school tommy would play with bonnie's two daughters 12 year old sandy and eight year old kathy who would dress the toddler up and play games and work puzzles with him this sounds nice this sounds like honestly better i mean it's going to be hard to be not with your mum but also this life seems seems way more stable just rather than being left at home with your siblings and hoping it's six siblings or five siblings and just hoping everything's okay wow as all this was happening, Nina grew even more distant from her son and eventually stopped visiting altogether, and in truth, that was for the best. Tommy was finally happy, and had he stayed in his aunt's house, he would have likely gone on to lead a normal life. However, that was not meant to be. 
When Tommy was five years old and preparing to start school, Bonnie contacted Nina and told her that she'd like to continue raising Tommy as her own. She said that Tommy was happy living with her and that he was flourishing under her care. She said that she was even willing to pay for Tommy's college when the time came, if he wanted to go, that is. The only problem, Bonnie said, was that legally she was not Tommy's mother and could not enroll him in kindergarten. She needed Nina's permission to do that, but since Nina no longer seemed interested in raising her son, she offered another solution. Bonnie told Nina that she wanted to make the arrangement permanent by adopting Tommy. After that phone call, Nina arrived at Bonnie's house for the first time in months and ripped Tommy from his aunt's arms while accusing her of trying to steal her son. Wow, Nina. Wow. That's some gratitude right there, isn't it, Nina? She drove Tommy back to her home and never permitted the two of them to see each other again. For the rest of his childhood, Tommy was met with a swift smack whenever he dared to mention Aunt Bonnie's name. According to Bonnie, she cursed herself for not fighting for Tommy, not going to the police, or hiring a lawyer for not doing something to help him. And decades later, when Tommy's crimes were eventually revealed, she blamed herself yet again. It's not your fault. If any, it's it's the mother's fault, if anything. She's the one causing this trauma and taking him, him, him away. But it also seems like he's a natural psychopath. So what caused that? Who knows? Nature versus nurture. Let's see if we uh, explore that any further. Back inside his mother's home, Tommy found himself in a miserable situation. All his siblings were latchkey kids with no manners or morals. Why is a latchkey kid? I've always heard this term. It's like an American term, but I don't know what it means. Latchkey child, a child who is at home without adult supervision for some or part of the day, especially after school until a parent returns home from work. Oh, okay. Is that so unusual? Like, if both your parents work, and I mean, you ought to be old enough, but to come back from school before your parents come back from work? I guess there's an age where that becomes normal. There was definitely an age where I, I can't remember how old I was. Mid-teens, I would guess. My parents were like, okay, with me being at home or coming home from school before they go back from work. Just make myself a sandwich and hang out, watch some telly maybe do my homework. <laughs> he no longer had enough food to eat, and while his mother did enroll him in school as was required by the law, he rarely attended. There were no truant officers at the time in rural Oklahoma. By seven years old, little Tommy was beginning to have major behavioral issues, which were only compounded when he started stealing alcohol from his grandfather's liquor cabinet. Nina told him to stop drinking, but he would continue to sneak glasses of hard liquor regularly, which had a profound effect on his development. Yes, getting drunk as a kid is going to do that. On the rare occasions, also not going to school is going to do that. On the rare occasions that Tommy did go to school, he found few friends, and since his development had been so slowed by alcohol and lack of nutrition, he found it impossible to keep up with those around him. His grades were poor and he did not cooperate or socialize with other children. And just like back at home, he was also bullied mercilessly at school. However, this changed when Tommy realized that he could fight back. After this, all bets were off and the other children quickly learned that bullying Tommy was a very bad idea. <laughs> yeah, it's like that one day you learn to fight back. And it's just, just let them know you're a psycho. <laughs> While all this was happening at school, Tommy's home life continued to be a mess, but Nina no longer cared enough to address any of Tommy's behavioral issues. She allowed her son to do as he pleased, go wherever he wanted, and steal from and vandalize the neighborhood. She even allowed him to hang around with complete strangers who she'd never met. Responsible parenting right there, isn't it? One day, while alone in town at only eight years old, Tommy met an older man named Willis Clark. Willis Clark liked to hang out at the local pool hall and was eager to teach the young boy how to play pool. It's a bit weird, isn't it? What's this? Where's this going? He bought food and snacks for Tommy, drove him to wherever he wanted to go in his truck, and even allowed him to occasionally spend the night at his home so that Tommy could escape his mother's wrath and his siblings' relentless bullying. Look, this is going to go two ways. Either this guy's a genuinely nice dude, or he is a terrible dude terrible dude, isn't he? Let's see. Once again, Tommy was being provided for, but he was also being abused. Willis Clark was a P-word. 
course he was. Why can't this just go nicely? It's like, no, he's just looking out for him. He was just a genuinely nice old man. <laughs> it's like, no, no, he's a predator. No, he was, wasn't he? Because this is a true crime show. Not the warm and fuzzies show, isn't it? At first, these visits only lasted for a few days, but when Nina attempted to get her son to return home, Tommy refused, screaming and rampaging through the house until he was allowed to return to Willis. Eventually, Nina stopped trying, and Tommy was permitted to stay with Willis on a near-permanent basis. Mother of the f***ing year right there. This kid's eight. This resulted in him being sexually abused for years. In the book The Anatomy of Evil, author Michael H. Stone draws a direct connection between Tommy's abuse at the hands of Willis Clark, the fighting he engaged in at home and at school, and the crimes they would later commit, stating, This kind of premature introduction to the sexual life often has the effect, through its overstimulation, of making the child both preoccupied with sex and hypersexual. A boy born with genetic risk for violence, who is then exposed to such an erotically turned-on environment, may steer his course towards sexual crimes rather than, say, embezzlement and bank robbing. <laughs> it's like the lesser of two evils, isn't it? It's like, what do you want? Do you, you want to be a sexual criminal or do you just want to do a little bit of embezzling? And it's like, always be the embezzler. <laughs> At least then you don't go to like scary prison. I mean, if you're a sexual criminal, like a P word is going <laughs> to, what are you in for? Well, I'm in for that. You're going to have a rough time. What are you in for? Embezzlement. Hey! <laughs> Look, don't embezzle. I'm not saying that it's it's fine. It's just obviously better. Everybody who's been embezzled from is like, Simon, what the f***, man? Someone embezzled all my money. <laughs> well, just think about it. Would you rather have had all of your money embezzled or would you rather have had what happened to old... Uh What's his face here? This is exactly what Tommy did. After being abused for over three years by Willis Clark, Tommy's understanding of sex and relationships had been permanently warped. As he had matured into a teenager, this mind was unable to differentiate between what was appropriate and what was completely inappropriate. At the age of 13, Tommy stripped naked and crawled into bed with his sleeping grandmother. Jesus. But before he could do anything, she awoke and screamed. Disgusted, she chastised her grandson, yelling, You'd better get your ass out of this bed and stop this Yes, which is an entirely rational reaction to that. I and mean, they'd be like, what the f*** is going on? When Nina learned what had happened, she was finally stirred to action and attempted to get Tommy's psychological help at a local hospital, but Tommy was denied. Oh no, Tommy needs that. Bro, if he's getting naked and getting into bed with his grandma, holy sh does he need that. Jesus. Because Nina was terrified that her son would hurt either her or one of his siblings, she then packed up the family while Tommy was away for one day and fled the state. She left Tommy alone at the age of 14 to fend for himself. Oh my god. Like, I know where Tommy ends up. He's killed, like, he says he's killed 70 people, so I don't want to have any sympathy for him. But at this point in his life, Jesus Christ, he's just getting absolutely royally f And... It's just turning him into a monster. All of this is making someone who's already predisposed to be a monster into like a mega monster. Riding my thumb. With nothing left to keep him rooted in the tiny Missouri town, Tommy decided that it was time to make a change. He was tired of walking past the same boring houses and businesses every day and wanted to see something anything new. He wanted to get away from Willis Clark and everyone in town who looked down on him, so with no destination in mind, he stuck out his thumb and watched as an interstate trucker pulled over beside him and asked him if he needed a ride. According to Tommy, he then spent the next few years traveling around the country to witness America's beauty firsthand. He went west through Kansas, Colorado, Utah, and Nevada before stopping in California. He then went south through Arizona and New Mexico to Texas. Then he went wherever he could, north, south, east, or west, small towns, big cities, he saw them all, and he survived on the kindness of strangers who were willing to give him food and provide him with transportation. 
when none of those were available, he'd break into homes and steal food, as well as clothing and electronics and jewelry to sell. Before he'd even turned 18, Tommy was more well-traveled than many small-town residents in the 1970s would ever be. In one state, he stopped at a tattoo parlor and requested the image of a headstone bearing the name Tammy Jean Sells Be Tattooed on his upper arm. By July of 1979, one month after turning 16, he arrived in Mississippi to the town of Port Gibson for the first time, and it was here that he would commit his first murder. According to Tommy, on the night of July 5, 1979, he approached the home of John and Kathleen Cade on foot at around 3 a.m. with the intent to sneak inside and steal from them as they slept. From outside the bedroom window, he spotted John and Kathleen asleep in the master bedroom with their 10-year-old son, John Jr., nuzzled between them. He then crept around the home's exterior, looking for an unlocked window, found one, and then scurried inside. He raided their refrigerator, loading his pockets with food and drinks, and then he crept down the hall toward the bedroom with the 38 pistol in his hand. I remember earlier when I talked about motive. While Tommy never gave a reason for why he shot John in his sleep, but when the man awoke in agony, blood was pouring from his stomach, and in the darkness, neither he nor Kathleen realized that he had been shot. Tommy, who had already fled the home before the lights came on, didn't leave a single fingerprint behind, and by the time an ambulance arrived, John was already dead. Initially, Kathleen was blamed for her husband's murder, but she was quickly cleared as a suspect after agreeing to speak with the police and passing a polygraph test. Officers at the local station were left puzzled by who could have done this and why. Neither they nor Kathleen would find out the truth for over two decades. By the following year, 1980, Tommy had made it back to California and was living on the streets of Los Angeles. While there, he claimed to have met and killed another homeless man with an ice pick, although nothing about this claim, including the name of his supposed victim, has ever been verified. It feels a bit cliche, as he killed him with an ice pick. What has been verified, however, is a bar fight that Tommy engaged in the following month in Oakland, California. During this fight, Tommy stabbed a man multiple times before being stabbed in the back himself by a local gang member. Jesus, <laughs> I wouldn't call that a fight, I'd call that a stabbing. Yeah, I was in a fight. And we got stabbed multiple times. <laughs> it's like you weren't in a fight, you were in an attempted murder. After limping away, Tommy realized that he was seriously wounded, bleeding, and near death. He arrived at a hospital later that night where a doctor examined him and said that whatever he had been stabbed with had missed his spine by the width of a pencil lead. The doctor said that Tommy needed emergency resurgery, but he refused treatment. Why? If a doctor's like, we need to get you into the OR like yesterday, you're not like, nah, I, I, I think I'm okay. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's not done of insurance. <laughs> They're like, well, like, get out of the bloody hospital, you Desperate peasant. Do me a favor, please. Get out of here. Get out of here, man. As Diane Fanning tells it in a book, Tommy would not allow any doctor or nurse to insert a catheter because he could not stand to be touched. Even after they told him that his kidneys were bleeding and he would likely die if he didn't receive proper treatment, he still could not bring himself to allow it. Tommy left the hospital in anger and attempted to manage his wounds on his own. This, it turns out, was very difficult, just as the doctor predicted. And he nearly died. Yeah, the doctor's like, you need emergency surgery. He's like, nah, I'm just going to go home and like put some plasters, some band-aids on these. It'll be fine. It's like, your kidneys are bleeding. You can't put plasters on your kidneys. And he's like, I got this. I've got this. I need to sign that form so I can leave. Seeing that he could not handle caring for his wounds himself, Tommy then hitched a ride from Oakland, California, all the way back to St. Louis, Missouri, a journey that was well over 2,000 miles long. Here he re-established contact with his mother, who we learned was living nearby. Wait, so he's got these bleeding kidneys. He's a right mess and he's like hitchhiking 2,000 miles. Can you imagine that guy gets in your car and it's like, mate, are you bleeding all over my seats? <laughs> what the f***, man? Get out! 
Why are you doing this? According to Tommy, after abandoning him two years earlier, Nina had moved herself and the other children north to marry a man that Tommy had never met in Michigan. This marriage did not last long, as just one year later she was back in Missouri in the house where Tommy found her. Thankfully for him, Nina took pity on her son and agreed to nurse him back to health. By this point, he was nearly dead. While living with Nina and his siblings in St. Louis and then moving with them to Arkansas the following year, Tommy and Nina's relationship continued to be extremely volatile. While Nina cared for him, Tommy realized that his mother had grown controlling and demanding after her divorce from the man in Michigan and quickly grew tired of her incessant nagging. They argued often and those arguments sometimes escalated to physical violence. Once Tommy was back on his feet, he left home once again but returned a short time later after finding nowhere else to go. The following year, in May of 1981, Tommy's time under Nina's roof ended permanently. One afternoon, while Nina was bathing, Tommy climbed into the shower beside her and attempted to sexually assault her. Bro, 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 no. Nina had to physically push her son away as she screamed at him to leave and never return. Tommy fled the home as Nina called the police. The following day, Tommy was picked up for the attempted sexual assault and taken to a mental health clinic in Jonesboro, Arkansas, but he was released after being given advice on how to handle his anger. Yo, if you're in the mental institution for sexually attempted sexual assault on your mother, they'd be like, eh, well, you know, you're fine. Just learn how to control your anger, okay? Deep breaths, mate. Deep breaths. You need to be in there. He maybe needs to be given some sort of pill. He'd returned to this clinic four more times in the following weeks to seek treatment, but he never showed up for his sixth appointment. Life is a Highway Over the next two years, Tommy stayed in Arkansas and attempted to build a life for himself, and despite his many issues, he did have some level of success. Had he not already murdered two, possibly three people, I might be tempted to root for him. Yeah, if he had murdered anyone, if he, had, if he wasn't a piece of sh**, you'd be like, well, this guy's come from a horrible background and has endured some terrible sh**. Of course you'd root for him and be like, yes, go for it, break the cycle. But he's a murderer. He's already murdered. He hasn't broken the cycle, and it turns out he's the coast-to-coast killer, killing people from coast-to-coast. It's a mega piece of Having now turned 18, Tommy began searching for a job and he eventually found work as a store clerk at a local shoe store. Here he earned his first ever legitimate income, however, since it was only a meager amount and not enough to survive on, he also supplemented his income by selling marijuana and other soft drugs on the side. Outside of work, Tommy also began having luck with women. With a slim build, a beaming smile, an armful of tattoos, and a fantastic mullet, he had become every Missouri woman's fantasy bad boy. Plus, thanks to the years he had spent on the road begging strangers for his every meal, he learned how to talk to people and had become quite charismatic. This allowed him to literally charm the pants off women, but it wasn't long before one special woman caught his eye. This woman's name was Cindy Hanna, and she was Tommy's first real girlfriend. According to those that knew the couple, Cindy Hanna was a good girl, a quiet church girl, and her parents hated Tommy, which drove her right into his arms. At first, their relationship seemed stable and happy, but that all changed when Cindy got pregnant after a few months. After after this, the pressures of fatherhood began to build, and Tommy's mental state completely collapsed. Soon, he was drunk and high on marijuana all day every day and useless to Cindy and their newborn son. Anger was once again building inside Tommy, and this time he had no interest in suppressing it or returning to the mental health clinic for more counseling. As a result, Tommy began growing violence once again. In 1982, Tommy claims that he met a young woman at a fast food restaurant outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, although he could not recall her name. Isn't her? What's his face? 
Bill Clinton, isn't he, from Little Rock, Arkansas? Why do I know that? <laughs> Tommy said that he had kidnapped the woman, took her into the woods, sexually assaulted there, and then tossed her body into a quarry lake. She was never identified, and her body was never recovered, so this claim has also not been verified. The following year, in 1983, Tommy abandoned Cindy and their son and moved into an apartment of his own. By now, he was dealing drugs full-time and had started hooking up with another woman called Nicole Snow. In July of that year, Tommy killed again. This time he targeted the home of a family that lived just down the street from him. It was the home of Thomas and Colleen Gill and their two children, four-year-old Tiffany and one-year-old Sean. On the night of the 31st of July 1983, Thomas Gill pulled into his driveway and saw the shadow of a man fleeing from his home. Fearing the worst, he ran inside and found the bludgeoned bodies of his wife and daughter. Sean was still alive and had been unharmed, but had Thomas not returned when he did, the boy would have likely been killed as well. Jesus Christ. When police arrived at the scene, they initially blamed Thomas because they'd just taken out a life insurance policy on his wife three weeks earlier, but no other evidence was ever found that supported their theory that he killed her. God damn, dude, that is unfortunate timing. Imagine they get out a life insurance policy on somebody, you're like, for the weeks after, you're like, oh, I really hope you don't get murdered. Because <laughs> that's going to look bad. One, life insurance policy. Two, I'm the husband. It's always, you know, I've seen CSI, it's always the husband. <laughs> Decades later, Tommy would take credit for the killing and revealed information about the crime that had not been made public, so police consider this case now to be cleared by exception. After that night, possibly because he had almost been caught, Tommy settled down and kept his nose relatively clean. He did receive several traffic tickets in St. Louis, but other than that, he claimed to have not killed again for several years. I just got a speeding ticket. I know I did. <laughs> I got, like, for some reason, whenever the postman comes, we have these, if you get a speeding ticket, it has to be delivered to your hand. So so they know that you have received the speeding ticket and then they know that you've got the 14 days or whatever to pay for it. But the postman never rings the doorbell. He always just drops this letter that says I have to go to the post office and pick it up. But it comes with this little ticket and it tells you where the, the things come from. And it's come from a town that's miles away that I was driving through about the time it would take for them to process a speeding fine. <laughs> so I'm like, I know it's a speeding fine. I'm just looking at that thing like, ah, oh, fuck's sake. Uh, so I know I'm going to have to, I'm not going to go collect it because I, re I discovered that uh, if you just wait like a week, eventually they just deliver it anyway, which seems to make the whole to your hand thing pointless. But um, yeah, why did we go on this? Oh, because I got a speeding ticket. I get more speeding. I never got, I didn't get a speeding ticket until I must have been like 30 something. And now I get at least two a year. And I think it's just because I'm generally driving with the kids in the car. And I'm just like not paying as much as much attention because the kids are often like screaming or talking or we're listening to like horrible kids music. And I'm just like, let's just go home as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> but now I get lots of speeding tickets. It's, it's not good because I, I mean, I'm not a dangerous driver, I don't think. I've never really been in any serious accidents. I smashed my car up once parking. I just like parallel parked into someone. But that's it. That's the only major accident. Although I blew out the power steering, but then I was doing a little bit of off-roading <laughs> i sank into a clay bog and getting out the power steering blew out as alpha sake <laughs> sorry enough about my car adventures let's get back to the reason you're here the crime however this was not likely by choice but because there was one major thing that certainly helped him stay on the straight and narrow a nice two-year stint in jail in may of 1984 tommy was arrested in benton missouri and charged with stealing a ford mustang for this he was given two years inside a missouri state penitentiary where he reportedly didn't take no 
from anybody. After being transferred to a different prison twice during that two-year period, Tommy was paroled early and officially labeled a felon. Now, and for the rest of his life, any income Tommy made would be either illegitimate or poverty wages that purposefully exploited his near-unemployable status. Yeah, this is such a stupid thing. This is right, right? If you leave prison and you're a felon or whatever, and I'm talking about America specifically because I feel it's come up before, you always have to declare that, right? So it's going to be a lot harder to find a job that's paying like a decent wage and stuff because they'll be like, are you a felon? And he'll be like, yeah, yeah, I did steal a Ford Mustang once when I was young. And they'll be like, sorry, mate. So it's obviously going to encourage people to do more crimes. I feel like that should be expunged from your record or should like, there should be limits on what you have to declare. Like <laughs> being like, yep, felon, right here, hello. Depending on the crime, obviously. Like if you're uh going in for the job of security guard and you've like got a history of violent assaults then probably not the best idea like or if you're going to be like the finance guy at a company probably best if you haven't got a massive history of embezzlement for example three months after his release in july of 1985 tommy stole another car traveled to roller missouri and found work as a carny at a festival in forsyth while traveling with and working for this carnival tommy also continued selling drugs although he had now graduated to cocaine this is where he met 35 year old Enna Court. She was a car wash employee who had recently been divorced and she was only barely managing to scrape by. However, that night she was treating her four-year-old son Rory to a night out so that he could ride the rides and see the flashing colorful lights of the carnival games. According to Tommy, he and Enna caught one another's eye that night and began flirting while he worked. After this, he abandoned his job to return home with her and the two of them had consensual sex while Rory was asleep in the other room. Once this was over, Tommy went to the bathroom and when he returned, he caught Enna stealing cocaine from his backpack. He then lost his temper and grabbed a nearby wooden baseball bat and beat her to death as Rory watched. Canal that escalated quickly. He then turned and did the same thing to Rory. Good in lord, how old? What the f- man? That is some psycho sh- How old's that kid? I know he's killed a f- four years old! The only thing about this story that the police were able to confirm for certain is that Tommy had murdered Enna and Rory. There is no evidence that he met her at a carnival or that they drove home together or had consensual sex. This part of the story could have easily been fabricated, but either way, the police wouldn't learn Tommy's name for another 15 years. It's a bit weird that he would make up that part of the story. Why would he just make up the other part? It's like, you're already admitting to murder, bro. (laughs) They're not going to be like, oh, well, you went home with her and she said that was okay, so we'll let you off the murder. No, no, no. After that night, Tommy made his way northeast to Lockport, New York, where he reportedly murdered a woman, Susanna Quartz, outside a nightclub in 1987. He admitted to throwing her body into Niagara Falls, but the water washed away much of the evidence and made determining a cause of death impossible. Tommy also claims that at some point during the 80s, he sexually assaulted a murdered woman near his family home in Little Rock, Arkansas, and later shot a man in a home burglary gone wrong. He said that he disposed of the woman's body in a bauxite mineshaft and simply left the man for dead. By 1987, Tommy had gotten a job as a roofer in Winnemucca in Nevada. No idea if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's a name and a half, isn't it? One day, while he was on the job and driving down Interstate 80, a young woman, 21-year-old Stephanie Kelly Straw, flagged him down and said that she needed a ride. She said that she'd just returned home from overseas, where she'd spent the last two years traveling across Europe and Asia as part of a multi-country tour. She was looking to head to Reno. The truck that Tommy was driving that day was stolen. However, Stephanie had no way of knowing this, and when he pulled over to offer her a ride, she graciously accepted. A few miles down the road, Tommy stopped the truck at the side of the road, sexually assaulted her, dumped her body in a hot spring geyser, and then fled the state. Tommy's boss and co-workers at the roofing company never heard from him again. This guy seems to just be brazenly committing a lot of murders, and he's just not getting caught at all. It's a lot of, like, 
egregious murders. The Ina Massacre By November of 1987, just over a month after killing and disposing of Stephanie Strah's body, Tommy had traveled over 1,700 miles east and back into Missouri. By this point, he had lost access to his stolen truck somewhere along the way and was once again hitchhiking across the state. Soon, he arrived in St. Louis and spent several weeks working manual labor jobs that paid by the day and stealing food and clothing to keep himself alive. Sometimes, when a stranger's generosity presented itself, he would have a roof over his head for a few days, but this was rare and he spent most nights sleeping under the barren sky. It's stars having been drowned out by the city's ever-present lights. After all available work for a felon dried up, Tommy once again set out from St. Louis with no destination in mind. He caught a ride with the truck driver, continued east for approximately 90 miles, and crossed over into Illinois in the little town of Ena. It was here, in a community of approximately 500 people, that Tommy committed his most sickening crime. We've had him bludgeoned to death a four-year-old, Matt. I don't really want to know where we're going with this. On November the 17th, while searching for a ride near an interstate truck stop, Tommy was spotted by 29-year-old Keith Dardine. Keith was driving a red 1981 Plymouth truck, and Tommy, who was beginning to look homeless with his wild, bushy beard and hair, asked him for a ride. Feeling sorry for the man, Keith decided to go a step further and offered to drive Tommy to his home and cook a meal for him. The next day, Keith did not show up for work, which was extremely unusual for him, and his boss began calling Keith's home to make sure that everything was all right. When neither Keith nor his wife Elaine answered the phone, he became even more worried. He then called Keith's parents, but neither of them had heard from their son either. Fearing the worst, Keith's supervisor phoned the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office. Later that night, deputies arrived outside a tiny trailer pressed up against the county line. Keith's father, Don, had driven to Ena to meet with and unlock the door for them. Inside, they found the bodies of Elaine, her son Peter, and her newborn baby. All three were tucked into the same bed with duct tape across their mouths. They'd been beaten to death with a baseball bat, and Elaine's breast had been removed. Keith was nowhere to be found. After marking off the scene, they began collecting evidence, but there was little. The bat, the remaining roll of duct tape, and a small bag of marijuana were found. However, they could not find any foreign fingerprints. Whoever had killed the woman and her children had taken the time to clean up and pose them. This led police to believe that the murderer must have been comfortable inside the home because doing so would have taken time, possibly hours. Obviously, the first person the police wanted to speak to was Keith, as he was still missing, and as her husband was their most likely suspect. Taking no chances, a team of armed officers began searching for him at various spots around Ena that he was known to frequent, but their search did not last long. In the field adjacent to the Dardine family's trailer, a pair of hunters stumbled across Keith's Plymouth and immediately phoned the police. Blood splatter coated the entire interior, and Keith's body was inside. Like his wife and children, he had been beaten severely. He had also been shot three times and castrated. The scene, Jesus, Jesus, I see what you mean about this sickening crime. The scene was so horrific the police reportedly had a hard time processing it. Forensic investigators then went to work to establish a timeline. They determined that all four members of the Dardine family had been murdered within an hour of each other. Based on where Keith's truck was located, this would mean the murderer would have had more than enough time to reach the home on foot and still be well within that timeline, and also meant that the murderer must have not spent much time with Elaine and her children before killing them. Since the town was so small world travel quickly, and with no concrete evidence to lead them to a suspect, investigators were not able to calm the public's fears, and residents of Inna fell into a panic. They bought guns, they slept in shifts to keep watch, and blamed the act on Satanists due to how severe and random the crime appeared. Eventually, a local man was arrested, but he was released after proving his innocence. Over the next 14 years, this crime would haunt the residents of Ina as they struggled to move past it. 
In this time, investigators would continuously reopen the case and ended up interviewing nearly every single person in town. In total, over a thousand people were interviewed, but no leads proved solid. Eventually, they received help from two FBI profilers who helped them narrow down their list of potential suspects, but even the FBI struggled with the case. In all, they reviewed over 150 pieces of evidence and filled over 20 large binders with notes. They even researched and provided information on various cults in the area, but these leads also turned up nothing. After a while, the Dardines case became just another cold case. But due to the brutality of the crime, it was never forgotten by the locals. The problem that nobody in town realized was that the Dardine family's killer had already fled the state just hours after committing the crime. He'd slipped into and out of town without so much as a trace, and nobody but Keith and his family had ever seen his face. Years later, after being captured, Tommy would admit to killing the entire Dardine family, and although his claims were disputed, the case is still technically classified as unsolved. Many law enforcement officials who possess intimate knowledge, such as the original investigators that were called to the scene, believe it, and so do I. According to Tommy, after being picked up outside the truck stop, Keith drove his Plymouth in the direction of his house but stopped in an abandoned field shortly before they arrived. Keith then propositioned Tommy for sex and told him that they could do it right there inside the truck or after eating dinner, Keith could send his son to bed and he, his wife, and Tommy could all have a threesome together in the living room. For some reason, possibly due to his childhood trauma, this invitation enraged Tommy when, without thinking, he pulled out a pistol from his backpack and shot the man dead where he sat. Tommy then claims that he mutilated the body and then proceeded on foot to Keith's home, where he attacked Keith's four-year-old son with a baseball bat, killed him, and then used the same bat to kill Keith's wife. He said that while he was beating her, Elaine gave birth, and then he beat the new... <sighs> After this, Tommy said he cleaned up the crime scene as best he could, posed the mutilated bodies in their beds, and then left on foot, heading in the direction of the nearby interstate, which was approximately 2,000 yards away from the home. I can see why this has that uh, Pedro Lopez competition. Jesus Christ. Obviously, I'm keeping the details light, but even my sanitized version is horrific enough on its own. According to the police, Tommy's story contained intimate knowledge of the crime, and he was able to provide many details that were never made public, such as how Elaine and her children's bodies had been posed. His claims also fit within the timeline, and he even told them about a unique ceramic watermelon that he'd seen inside their living room. This watermelon was a piece of information that only someone who had been inside the home could possibly have known about. When police reviewed the crime scene photos, they saw the watermelon. This detail was too specific to be a random guess. After all, it wasn't like Tommy had claimed to see an angel figurine or a wooden cross, two staples of 1980s rural America. However, detractors of Tommy's claims, which should not be dismissed outright, cite inconsistencies in his story and the fact that his retelling has changed many times over the years, which is, I mean, memories change, and especially, like, if you're retelling something, it's more likely to change, because each time you retell the memory, you're retelling the last retelling, you're not retelling the original memory. So some of the memories, like, that we have that we think about the most are actually some of our most inaccurate memories. A truly accurate memory would be someone, you know, who was in your past being like, hey, remember that time? And it's the first time you thought about it in years. That's a much more accurate memory than the ones that you think about more often, which is weird, isn't it? In one version of the story, Tommy says that he met Keith at a pool hall instead of a truck stop, and when describing how he left Keith inside the pickup truck, he fails to describe the position of the body with any amount of accuracy. He does get the number of gunshots correct, however. This information was reported on and published in local papers. Detractors also claim that Tommy could have easily guessed the position of Elaine and Peter's bodies, although this is not likely. Tommy himself says that these inconsistencies are the result of a lifetime of drug use and the fact that his confession came almost two decades after the murders took place. Yeah, and normally you'd think this is something you'd remember, but this guy's done some really horrible in his life. Is another possibility just wild speculation here? I know it's a thing that murderers who are in prison or on death row or whatever, 
Don't they sometimes take the rap for someone else so there'll be some crime and they'll be like, yeah, I did that one. Just so the police stop investigating and trying to find the real killer. And the real killer's like, nice, thanks, mate. Here's some money for your family or whatever. However that works. Is it possible that someone has told him what to say and he's taking responsibility for this despite it being someone else's crime? And like, he's just getting some of the details wrong because he's not remembering what he's been told correctly or like for the body posing or whatever. He doesn't know. Like maybe he just wasn't told. Dardine's surviving family also dispute the claims based on the fact that Keith was not bisexual and did not engage in wife-swapping or group sex, but I personally dismiss these concerns without much thought. Those activities are not typically something that you go around advertising to your family, especially in a small town in the late 1980s. After Tommy's confession, many people closed the book on the case, and that is where I will too. Back to jail, then to prison. By 1988, Tommy had made his way to Tucson, Arizona, and established himself as a small-time drug dealer. He was still homeless and, of course, dipping into his own supply regularly, and this wasn't helping his temper at all. He was also becoming extremely paranoid. In December of that year, another homeless man, Kent Allen Lawton, accepted drugs from Tommy with a promise to pay at a later date. Weeks then went by, as did the day that Kent had promised to pay, and Tommy became enraged when he realized that the man whom he had trusted was trying to screw him over. After tracking Kent to a local homeless camp, Tommy stabbed the man, dragged his body outside the camp, to a dimly lit area and buried it in a shallow grave. Fearing that he had been spotted, he then fled the state and attempted to lay low. While it's not known exactly where Tommy went after this, by 1989 he had hitchhiked his way into Wyoming and had spent several months in Rawlings, a small town where he became known to locals as a roadside regular. He often held a sign asking for food or money, but when people would stop to offer him some, he would scream at them berating them for no reason. That year, he spent Christmas Eve doing two of his favorite things, excluding murder, getting doped out of his mind, and robbing people. By January, he was still in town and had encountered a young couple. He stole their truck, scrapped it for parts, and then fled the scene when the police arrived. Trying to escape, Tommy holed up in a nearby train yard. It's kind of like... <laughs> this guy's committing a lot of crimes. He's not the smartest tool in the shed, and he's on drugs. Like, how is he just getting away with so many... Like, brazen crimes... <laughs> Not thought-out crimes, just like crimes of the moment. It seems like, how has he not been caught? Although I guess this section is titled To Jail and Prison, so uh, yeah, he's about to get caught, isn't he? Believe it or not, in jail, right away. He was hoping to board a train headed west and escape the law yet again, but this time the law caught up to him. An officer noticed Tommy stumbling drunkenly down the tracks and arrested him for public intoxication. While processing his few possessions, the officer found the money and some leftover truck parts that Tommy hadn't yet gotten rid of. His charges were then elevated to grand theft, which earned him a 16-month prison sentence. While in prison, Tommy was forced to confront his drug problem, but it nearly killed him. According to his psychiatrist, Tommy spent weeks having prolonged panic attacks and hallucinating that his tattoos were speaking to him. <laughs> oh my god, that sounds rough. <laughs> that's, that's some scary sh- This was the first time, despite being analyzed at multiple points throughout his life, that Tommy had ever received an official diagnosis beyond anger issues. He was diagnosed with a laundry list of disorders, many of which I mentioned in the intro. Depression, psychosis, and bipolar and schizoid personality disorders. After receiving treatment and drying out, Tommy's remaining sentence was served without incident, and he was released in the spring of 1991. However... He wasn't going to stay free for very long. In September of that year, in Mariana in Florida, Tommy broke into the house of Teresa Hall and killed her and her five-year-old daughter, Tiffany Hall. He bludgeoned them to death with a table leg that had ripped away from the family dining table. And while this horrific crime would not be the one to get him caught, the next one would. Good, finally. This guy's just in horrible monster. Several months later, after hitchhiking his way north into Charleston, West Virginia, Tommy was picked up by 19-year-old Fabian Witherspoon. She had seen Tommy holding a sign underneath an overpass that read, We'll work for food. She then drove Tommy back to her home, told him to wait in the car while she gathered some food and clothes for him, and then went inside. 
While loading these items into a pack, Tommy entered the home, took a knife from the kitchen drawer, and attacked her. Bro, she's 19 years old. She's taking you to the house to give you food and clothes, and you're like, yeah, yeah, just stab her. You're a fucking monster. Thinking fast, Fabienne was able to run into her bathroom, lock the door, and grab a ceramic duck from the nearby countertop. Then, using it as a weapon, she beat Tommy in the head as he knocked down her bathroom door and charged at her. She wrestled the knife from him, cutting her hand badly in the process, and then stabbed him 23 times in the abdomen and pelvis. She stabbed his liver, his kidneys, and one of his testicles. God damn, Fabienne. <laughs> you legend. Holy sh- after this, Tommy fled the home, but he was eventually located inside a local hospital's ICU. As it turns out, even if you aren't comfortable with doctors, you'll likely deal with some awkwardness when you're bleeding from your balls. Yeah, you've been stabbed 23 times in your tummy. You need a hospital. Although I'd just rather you just go into the forest and die, to be honest, you piece of sh- Based on testimony provided by Fabian, police were then able to charge Tommy with sexual assault and malicious wounding. However, thanks to the unbelievable skill of his lawyer, Tommy was able to get the sexual assault charge dropped and received a plea deal for only 10 years, and he was out in five. Bro. What the f***? That's it? He got five years for this? Life on the Outside After being released from prison in 1997, Tommy and his wife... Yes, I said wife. Tommy married a woman named Nora Price while in prison. Nora, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what's this, this? I know it's like there's a word for it, like Ophelia or whatever. You know, you've got like necrophilia, like prisoner Ophelia. Like this thing, there's this thing where like women, and I assume some men as well, but there's less women murderers in prison than in general, where they write to people in prison, like murderers in like Charles Manson. And sh- it's like, what is wrong with you? What are you actually up to? Tommy and his wife moved to Tennessee, where they hoped to start a new life together in marital bliss. Nora, I've got some news for you. It's not going to work out. I've no idea how these two met or anything about their marriage, but that's okay, because just a few months after arriving, Tommy decided the married life on the outside was not for him. He left Nora that same year and went back to living a free life on the road. Honestly, Nora, you got away light, to be honest. <laughs> that's the worst thing that happens. Uh, yeah, you could have been murdered. So, uh, congratulations? Shortly after leaving Tennessee, Tommy traveled back west into Illinois to the town of Lawrenceville. Here, he donned a ski mask and broke into the home of a young single mother, Julie Ray, and a 10-year-old son, Joel. Using a butcher's knife, he began stabbing the boy repeatedly until his screams alerted Julie. In the darkness, Julie did not see her son at first, but Tommy, who was still wearing his mask, and he turned the knife on her and began slashing wildly. Fortunately, Julie, who was a black belt in Taekwondo, managed to fight him off and wrestle the knife away. Fucking legends! <laughs> Jesus! Seeing that he had been beaten, Tommy dazed Julie with a hard blow to the head and then fled the home on foot. He never returned. Wait, was the kid okay? Was the ten-year-old okay? He was stabbing her. Is Joel okay? A few moments later, Julie struggled to her feet and gave chase. She had not seen Joel inside the home and assumed that the intruder must have kidnapped him. Outside, she found no signs of him either. Frantically, she ran to her neighbor's house and screamed for them to call the police. When they arrived... Oh... Oh no... The kid dies... Tommy never returned to Julie's home after that night, but the heartache he left in his wake was vast. Julie would never recover from losing her son, and to make matters worse, she was eventually arrested, tried, and convicted of murdering him. What the f***? Let me explain. Convicted of murdering him? Are you f***ing me, law? 
Because Joel and Julie were targeted at random and no physical evidence could be found to corroborate Julie's claim that a stranger had been inside her home, police suspected that Julie herself had been the one to kill Joel. She and her ex-husband, Leonard Kirkpatrick, were in the middle of a messy custody battle, and just two weeks before the break-in, Leonard had been awarded full custody after remarrying. Based on shaky blood spatter analysis of the blood found on Julie's t-shirt, prosecutors asserted that in a fit of rage, Julie had killed Joel despite her ex-husband's, and the jury agreed. Dude, that is not right. Also, isn't blood splatter analysis? I thought that was kind of disproven as, like, not really conclusive proof. In February 2002, Julie was sentenced to life in prison, but thankfully should not serve the entire sentence. Based on Sell's impending confessions, Julie's conviction was overturned in 2004, and although she was retried in 2006, she would never spend another day behind bars. This time, the jury found her not guilty. In 2010, 13 years after her son's death, she was formally exonerated. Tommy may not have killed Julie, but he effectively ruined her life. Hugh, Tommy. Jesus Christ, this guy is such a piece of sh**. God damn, I can see why he's got that Pedro Lopez competition. What a f***ing bag. Housekeeping Part 2 So since the start of this episode, you've heard details of over 20 murders, many of which involved young children, and by this point you might be ready to see Tommy strapped into electric chair. F***ing hell yes! Yes, America! Yes with your death penalty! Yes! Personally, I don't blame you. In the first script I ever wrote for The Casual Criminalist, which was titled The Bloody Harps, Simon declared that his opinion on the death penalty had been well and truly settled, and that is something I take great pride in. I was the one that, through my words and storytelling, was able to end that one-sided debate permanently. Yes, um, I was like, yeah, I'm pretty cool. Like, I mean, the issue with the death penalty has always been with me, and it used to come up every episode I have this debate with myself, and then it was like, no, I believe in it. Um, but it's just, what if the person's innocent? But in this case, he's not innocent, is he? Let's kill him. Let's just kill him. He deserves to die. I'm happy with the state killing people. They do it all the time. Wars are a thing. Let's fucking go. You have my permission to die. And people are like, Simon, you've got really toxic opinions sometimes. I'm like, yeah, okay. It's toxic opinion because it's not your opinion. Maybe I think your opinion's toxic. Maybe I've got a problem with letting uh, the state pay for people. Well, no, it's, it's more expensive for people to be killed, isn't it? Because of all the courts and stuff. No, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm just going to stop because I don't want to get back into this cycle of talking about the death policy every episode. <laughs> Let's carry on. I'm tired of this, Grandpa. That's too damn bad! Now, now that I'm done bragging, I should tell you that I've never set out purposefully to shock people with gruesome and unnecessary details. Yeah, I like that you kept it very clinical, to be honest. Thank you. Everything that I've included with this episode has a purpose, and I've completely skipped dozens of crimes and their details for the sake of both time and for respect. I'll tell you this to make one thing clear. Even though we will not be looking at each of them individually, Tommy has killed over 50 people in at least a dozen different states by this point in the story. He had been from coast to coast and used everything from guns, ice picks and baseball bats to the cliché kitchen butcher's knife. He had left his mark on more small towns than I could ever hope to name. So I hope, by this point, you understand how he was able to get away with everything for as long as he did. He was like a shadow that slipped in and out of towns without drawing more than a casual glance from those around him, but police also referred to him as a killing machine. The two facts combined made him one of the most effective and successful killers in American history, and if all of his crimes could be fully verified, I have no doubt that he would be regarded as one of the most infamous. However, I say all of this for one reason. Even though Tommy has probably already done enough to earn him a death sentence in your mind, and the next two years will be as bloodiest yet, for the sake of us all, myself included, I'm only going to be briefly touching on each one and giving the barest details as we move forward. But bear with me, because Tommy will eventually get what's coming to him. 
he, he does, doesn't he? He's getting in that chair. He's getting in that chair or he's getting that injection or the gas chamber. Firing squad. Hanging. Yes. On the road again. Now let's return to the night of October 1997. After fleeing Julie's home, Tommy was enraged that he had been bested by someone yet again and wasted no time targeting his next victim. Two days after the break-in at Julie's house on October the 15th, 1997, Tommy had made his way back to Springfield, Missouri, the same town where he had killed Enna Court and her son, Rory, after a carnival in 1985. Here he entered the bedroom of 13-year-old Stephanie Mahaney, abducted her, overdosed her with cocaine to subdue her, and transported her to an isolated field to sexually assault her. At this point, he strangled her and left the girl in the open air to be found. Two months later, December 14, 1997, Tommy arrived at an RV park just outside of Las Vegas, Nevada and kidnapped 19-year-old Yvette Muller. He transported her into the desert, sexually assaulted her, and then used an axe to cut her body into pieces before burying them on the bank of Snake River. Her body was, unfortunately, never recovered, and police believe that it may have been swept away or buried deeper by a landslide that occurred in the area not long after. The following year, in April of 1998, Tommy was living and working in San Antonio, Texas, when Thomas Brose, a carnival worker, was shot dead inside his RV. His body was discovered shortly after, and Tommy was seen fleeing the scene, but he was not identified. There is no known reason for the attack. One year later, in April 1999, while once again traveling through Tennessee, Tommy entered the home of Deborah Harris to sexually assault her. He used a knife from her kitchen to keep her quiet, but during the attack, Deborah's eight-year-old daughter wandered into the room. Tommy killed both of them. Two weeks later, on April the 18th, 1999, Tommy kidnapped a nine-year-old girl, Mary Beatrice Perez, from a local festival in San Antonio, Texas, and used a stolen vehicle to transport her to a secluded location. You already know what happened after that. Her body was discovered ten days later in a creek bed not far from the site where the assault had begun. The following year, in May of 1999, Tommy was sleeping in a van in Lexington, Kentucky, when he spotted 13-year-old Haley McCone swinging on a swing set at a local park. He abducted the girl, strangled her with her own t-shirt. He dumped her body in a shallow grave in nearby woods, covered her with leaves and other debris, and then fled the state. She was discovered by police the following week. Two months later, July 1999, Tommy was passing through Oklahoma again when he stopped for gas at a Love's Country store. Here around 4am, he noticed 14-year-old Bobby Lynn Wofford standing alone. Seizing his opportunity, Tommy then grabbed the girl, threw her into his van, and sped away to a remote location. He killed her with a hatchet. A quail hunter found her body four months later. When police began investigating, nearby residents reported that they had noticed a foul odor drifting through the air for weeks, but had assumed that it was just a dead animal from a nearby farm and discounted it. Later that year... Tommy would kill again, but this next victim was going to be his last. Kayleen and Crystal While all the murders we discussed in the previous section were happening, Tommy had been living permanently in California, and he had met and married a new woman, Jessica Lavrie. He was living with her and her four children from a previous marriage. Jessica didn't mind the frequent trips that Tommy would take, and that was perfect for Tommy because he had no plans of letting married life stand between him and his victims. He was no longer killing out of anger. By this point, he was killing for the simple pleasure of it, and he knew it. After moving with Jessica and her children to San Antonio, Texas, Tommy found work as a car salesman, the same profession that his biological father, Joe Lovins, once held, and slowly began building a positive reputation for himself around his neighborhood. He and Jessica joined a local church and made many friends within the community, one of which was Terry and Crystal Harris. Can you imagine just like, you're, you're just like hanging out, you're, you're Terry or whatever, and you're like, yeah, 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 you know, Tommy, car salesman, churchgoer. I just imagine him like, you know, in a set of boring clothes. And his wife and his four stepchildren, and just like hanging out. It's like, yeah, it's Tommy from the church. It's like, he's killed many people. You'd be like, what? <laughs> Tommy? 
The guy who sold me my Prius? <laughs> we don't know. It's not possible. These two, who are about the same age as Tommy and Jessica, also had several children of their own. Soon the Searles and the Harrises were visiting one another on weekends, having dinners and barbecues together, and even babysitting each other's children occasionally. Their daughter, 13-year-old Katie Harris, became Tommy's next target. For the next several weeks, Tommy kept a close eye on Katie whenever possible, until on December 31, 1999, he saw his opportunity to act. That night at around 4 a.m., Katie's father, Terry, had traveled out of town to help another friend of the family move, and Tommy knew this would be the perfect opportunity for him to slip into the Harris's home and have a look around. After getting wasted on booze at a local bar, Tommy approached the home on foot and carefully raised a window and climbed inside. Tommy, what are you doing? This is the thing. He's like, I know he varies his, like, MO and stuff, but he's pretty dim. Like, you're just going to get drunk and then do crimes? This is one of the rules. You don't get drunk and then do crimes. Drunk, it doesn't help. It makes you more confident, sure. But it also makes you you an idiot. <laughs> it makes you sloppy, especially if you're f***ing trashed. In this room, he had found 14-year-old Justin Harris asleep in his bed. Tommy then quietly exited the room, slipping silently down the hallway, and began peering into each bedroom while using the flame of a cigarette lighter to illuminate his path. At the end of the hall, inside a little girl's room, Tommy found Katie asleep on the lower bunk of a bunk bed. He then approached the bunk, crawled into bed beside Katie, and placed the knife against her stomach. Katie opened her eyes and recognized Tommy immediately. Confused, she asked, What are you doing here? He then pressed his hand over her mouth and told her to be silent as he used the knife to cut away her clothes. However, before anything else could happen, Katie wiggled free and shouted, Go get Mama. From the upper bunk, Crystal Cells leapt out of bed and flipped on the room's overhead light. Tommy hadn't expected anyone besides Katie to be in the room. Yeah, because he's drunk. It's a bunk bed. Do you not check the top bunk? What the f***? However, what he did not anticipate was that the entire Searles family was staying over with the Harrises for the week while their furniture was packed for the move. Through sleepy eyes, Crystal saw Tommy lying in Katie's bed. Then she saw blood pouring from Katie's neck. Her friend's throat had been slashed, and she wasn't moving. Tommy then stood and put himself between Crystal and the door. He lunged at her with a knife as she quietly and frantically begged for her life. I'll be quiet. I promise I won't say anything. It was Katie making the noise, not me. Tommy showed no mercy. He slit her throat, watched Crystal fall to the ground, switched off the bedroom light, and then exited the home via the front door as if nothing had happened. He climbed into his car, started the engine, and sped away. As soon as she heard the car disappear into the night, Crystal opened her eyes, grabbed her throat to stop the blood from pouring out, and then sprinted in soaked feet out of the house and down the street to the neighbor's house. Crystal banged on the door, and when her bets answered, she struggled to mouth the words, Call the police. She believed that everyone in the house had been killed the same way Katie had. She thought she was the only survivor. A short time later, police, fire trucks, and ambulances flooded the tiny rural road and entered the Harris's home, expecting the worst. Inside, they found everyone alive, except for Katie. When they found Crystal inside Herb's house, she had already lost consciousness and was having convulsions. They stabilized her as best they could and then waited anxiously for a medical helicopter to arrive. It was already en route. The next day, on the 1st of January 2000, Crystal awoke in hospital and saw two Texas Rangers standing guard outside her hospital door. Once she was fully awake, they handed her a notepad and asked her to write down the name of her attacker. However, since Crystal had never met Tommy or his family, she had no clue who he was. Oh, she's the other girl from the other family. Oh no, I didn't follow that. I thought she would obviously just be able to name him because she was the kid who went to the barbecues, but it was her friend. Oh, sh- but this is the one that gets him caught, right? So something's going to change. Instead, she began writing down his description. That afternoon, a police sketch artist arrived and worked with her to produce a sketch. Because it was not the most accurate scratch, the Harris family wasn't able to immediately identify Tommy. However, by pure luck, when the boyfriend of Crystal's mother, Doug Luca, saw the sketch, he was reminded of a man that had met the previous day at a gas station on the way out of town. He couldn't recall the man's full name, but he knew he went by Tom and that he worked as a car salesman. 
Doug didn't think that was much to go on, but it was just enough. That afternoon, the Texas Rangers drove to every car lot in Valverde County looking for a man named Tom that bore any resemblance to the sketch. Soon, they had their man. Tommy Linsells was arrested inside the trailer that he shared with Jessica and her four children. According to the arresting officer, Tommy did not ask what he was being arrested for. He just looked straight ahead with dead eyes as Jessica demanded to know what was going on. Without answering her questions, they read Tommy as right, slapped the cuffs on him, and loaded him into a squad car. Tommy's crime spree was officially over, and now he was ready to tell his story. Confessions, court dates, and closure. To the surprise of everyone at the Valverde County Sheriff's Office, Tommy didn't even attempt to deny killing Katie. Without any prompting, he revealed in detail how he had first noticed the girl, how he had entered the home, and how he had killed her. He wasn't embarrassed about what he did, and he wasn't concerned with what would happen to him after his confession, and once he started talking, he just didn't stop. He told them about everything, about how many people he had killed over the years, how he had taken his first life when he was a teenager, how he had killed people from one end of the United States to the other, how he had taken more lives than he could ever hope to remember. For the investigators, it was a shocking admission, to be sure, but they didn't doubt what Tommy was saying for a moment. They knew that the man on the other side of the table was genuine. When he spoke about the horrible things that had done throughout his life, he did so with almost no emotion. Instead, he spoke plainly, matter-of-factly, and didn't come across as a braggart either. After his willing confession, Tommy was assigned a lawyer who promptly advised him to stop talking immediately, or there would be nothing that she could do to help him. But Tommy was undeterred. He said, I want this to be over. I'm not going to stop. I don't need a lawyer. At the request of the police, Tommy traveled with officers back to the Harris's home, which now sat empty, and walked them step by step through the crime scene. He even demonstrated how he climbed through the window. In a matter of days, he gave investigators everything they could possibly need for a conviction. However, after learning that he was eligible to receive the death penalty, Tommy changed his tune. Later that year, at trial, Tommy pled not guilty to killing Katie, but he did admit to attacking Crystal. Up until that point, his defense had tried everything imaginable to get him deemed ineligible to stand trial. But when he went before the jury... Everybody saw him for what he was. On September the 18th, 2000, the jury returned a verdict of guilty after only two hours of deliberations. And two months later, Judge George M. Thurman sentenced Tommy to death. Yes! So bloodthirsty, but he needs to die. Three years after that, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal upheld its decision, as did every court in which Tommy and his lawyers attempted to file an appeal. After receiving a death sentence, Tommy was not charged with any more crimes, although Texas police continued to work with other police departments across the United States for years to corroborate his many confessions. And multiple times, Tommy offered to travel to sites where he supposedly dumped bodies in order to help police locate them, but this offer was denied because Texas law does not permit death row inmates to travel outside the state for any reason. For the next seven years, Tommy sat on death row, awaiting his fate. And during this time, he finally replied to many of the requests for interviews that he'd received over the years. He met with Diane Fanning, the true crime author I've referenced multiple times throughout this episode, as well as Dan Abrams, an interviewer for ABC Network's late-night news show Nightline, not to be confused with NBC's Dateline. <laughs> I wouldn't have confused it, because I, I mean, I've vaguely heard of these shows, but I don't really know them. When Tommy was asked about his crimes during the interview, he refused to speak in an active voice, such as, I did this, or I did that. Instead, he preferred to use a passive voice. He refrained from directly saying that he did anything wrong. He would not say that he had killed someone. He would speak as if he had just witnessed it. For example, her neck was cut, or the baby was also killed. When asked why he killed his victims, Tommy said, I like to watch the eyes fade, the pupil fade. It's like setting their souls free. When asked about if he regretted his crimes, he said, I am hatred. When you look at me, you look at hate. When you look at me, you know what hate is. Because I don't know what love is. I don't have no feelings. No more. No emotion. When asked about the children he killed, he says he killed them because he didn't want them to experience the pain he had lived through during his life. In his sick mind, killing them was one of the few acts of compassion 
that he had to offer. While housed inside the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, Tommy Lynn Sells was given an execution date of April 3, 2014. In his final days, he's said to have met with several visitors, including family members and his attorney. While in his holding cell, he asked a guard how it felt to receive a lethal injection. He was not happy with the guard's response. At the last minute, Tommy and his attorneys tried to postpone the death penalty by arguing that Texas's decision to use lethal injection constituted cruel and unusual punishment. However, the request was denied. Tommy Lynn Sells was pronounced dead at 6.27 p.m. that evening. He did not make a statement, nor did he apologize to his victims or their families before his death. Crystal Sells and the family of Katie Harris were in attendance. So was Mary Torres, the grandmother of nine-year-old Mary Beatrice Perez, the girl Tommy admitted to abducting near a festival in San Antonio, Texas in April of 1999. After the execution, Mary Torres told reporters, Whatever went through his veins, he went too quick for my satisfaction. Her husband, John Torres, added, We all have suffered so many years. It's payback time. Sean Harris, one of Katie's brothers, spoke as well. I wanted to see him die. That's honest. I wanted to know that he could no longer hurt anybody. And that's where we'll leave it today. Thanks for being here. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.